Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Al Franken, Lachaud, and Tom Hartman. at theyoungturks.com. Uh, We've been teasing it uh, throughout the show. Uh, the uh, Senate uh, uh, Intelligence Committee, the, Dem- excuse me, the Democratic Policy Committee, um, uh, this in week, the Senate, in the Senate, yes, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, for the first time, any group of senators in any way, uh, anybody in Congress, Democratic uh, Senate Policy Committee hearing yesterday, first time a congressional committee held a public hearing on uh, on the pre-Iraq War intelligence failure, the first time any testimony had been taken on post-war intelligence failings. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, uh, Pat Robertson, the uh, the Republican uh, chairman of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, says phase two, where we examine the misuse of intelligence, it's coming. He said, in fact, when Terry Reid shut down the Senate because it hadn't happened, what was that, six months ago? Yeah, a long time. Something like that. He said it was going to happen in two weeks. Yeah, I remember that. Why'd you do it? I was going to do it anyway. I was going to do it in two weeks. God, they're grotesque liars. They do it all the time. They do it without flinching. Senate Judiciary Committee, they held a hearing. They voted 11-7. Uh, to support and amending the Constitution to outlaw flag burning. All inspector who may actually, there's some evidence, may actually be getting the Bush administration to budge on warrantless wiretapping. All inspector confuses me on a, a daily basis, but has basically not done nearly enough on warrantless wiretapping. Held that here. Held that here. Pat Roberts can't hold it. Pat Roberts wanted to hold this hearing. We'd hold this hearing. All it would, all it would take. So Pat it Roberts. It wouldn't take two weeks. It'd take two minutes. Put together a meeting. Let's been, go. We're having it here. Would have been done two years ago. Yeah, of course. So anyway, so the Democratic Policy Committee did this. They call in witnesses, and they did a near uh, w- nothing short of a great job. Um, uh, uh, we have some clips from it. Uh, it was yesterday afternoon. Uh, really good stuff. Uh, among the people you will hear from, uh, retired uh, Colonel uh, Lawrence Wilkerson. He's the former chief of staff for Secretary of State uh, Colin Powell, a Republican. Uh, he, in fact, uh, used the phrase uh, cabal. First time he called the, the sort of Cheney, Rumsfeld, uh, you know, Fife, uh, uh, Wolfowitz referred to that as a cabal. Uh, so first you're going to hear a uh, 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 questioning from Republican Congressman Walter Jones, the only Republican. He's not even in the Senate. This was, uh, But uh, the uh, the Senate Democratic Policy Committee held this hearing. But Walter Jones showed up. He's not in the Senate. He's not Democrat. He's a hawkish Republican. But he's been from one of the, North Carolina. North Carolina, but one of the only Republican who's come out and said, look, I don't know, hawk, not hawk. We got lied to. Them's the facts. Uh, and so you're going to hear from Walter Jones, and then you're going to hear from uh, Lawrence Wilkerson. So this is a conversation at the Senate Democratic Policy Committee between two establishment Republicans yesterday. I, I, I'm not saying you did not do your duty, please understand. But my point is, as a congressman who trusted what I was being told, I'm not only the Intelligence Committee, Senator Dorgan, but I am on the Armed Services Committee, and I was being told this information, and I wish I'd had the wisdom then that I might have now. I would have known what to ask. But I think many of my colleagues that did not have the, in, the experience on the Intelligence Committee, we just pretty much accepted. So where along the way, how did these people so early on get so much power that they had more influence in those in the administration to make decisions than you, the professionals? Um, let me try to answer you first. Here's Lawrence Walker. Let me say right off the bat, I'm glad to see you here. Thank you, sir. Uh, as a Republican, uh, I'm somewhat embarrassed by the fact that you're the only member of my party here. I agree. But I understand it. Um, I'd answer you with two words. Let me put the article in there and make it three. The vice president. So there you go. So. You know, God these people was that cabal that Wilkerson was talking about. The neocons. The neocons and the Cheney and Rumsfeld people who sort of implemented the neocon plan. First of all, uh, I, I'm, 
I read about this. This is the first time I'm seeing these clips, though. God bless Walter Jones. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, God bless him 18 times over. That's what Democrats, that's what the Republicans say about Joe Lieberman. But yeah, <laughs> but in this case, but again, here's the difference. We're, it's a guy who's speaking the truth. That's all we care about. That's all we and care about. He's hel- it's, it's not a politics thing for him. He's like, look, I was a congressman. Because how does it help them to help the minority party? Yeah. If it was a political thing, it doesn't help him at all. Right, it helps Lieberman to help the party in power. Exactly, in power. to suck up to power. But this guy's not sucking up to power. He's going to a, a policy <laughs> committee meeting held by Senate Democrats. Who routinely get crushed. Right. So he says, well, I don't understand. Why did they lie to me? <laughs> why did they lie to me? And then second of all... And that's why, why did they lie to me? And how come they... controlled stuff and you didn't he's saying why was the whole establishment of the government that we have erected here and i I don't mean in a rush limbaugh way but i mean in a we've established here uh to to tell us you know how the intelligence and to help us make the correct decisions whether we're in congress or the presidency uh why did all of that fail and get taken over by a bunch of so-called intellectuals, yeah. as Rush would say, uh, these neoconservatives who have no constituency, who we've talked about before, are about maybe 80 people in the country. How do they take over the government? And Wilkerson's answer, very accurate, the vice president. Yeah, that's how it happened. So uh, there was... And that's telling not only because the vice president is on the side of the neocons and wound up hijacking the whole government, but... The president has no clue. Mm-mm. He didn't have. He had no idea that the vice president. But here's the guy, who the vice presidential selection committee selected himself, and the president didn't get. The Al Franken Show. Juan Cole is joining us. He's a professor at the uh, University of Michigan in uh, modern Middle East and South Asian history, uh, proprietor of the blog and forum comment at JuanCole.com, which I would recommend to all our listeners. Uh, Juan, you, you were just in uh, Jordan, right? Yes. And uh, so I, I want to talk about what the consequences of this war, our war in Iraq, uh, are for the rest of the uh, of the region. Yeah, well, the war has destabilized uh, the uh, eastern portions of the Middle East, and you might have thought it wasn't a really stable place to begin with. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, it's uh, much more unstable now than it was uh, uh, four years ago. Is it is it unstable? Is there anything good to say about the way in which it's unstable? Well, I I would say that uh, um, like more more you know uh, more elections like uh, yeah more, I can't I can't personally see a way in which the Iraq War uh, has uh, been. Uh, particularly beneficial in the region in, in, in spreading elections or democracy or human rights or anything like that. I think it's been a big source of terror uh, for all the neighbors and, uh, and a threat of destabilization. Well, now, we had uh, in Jordan, of course, was uh, the, the site of some terrorist attacks, the, those hotels, and that's part of the reason that they contributed in, in, in getting Zarqawi, right? Yeah, the Jordanian military uh, and, and intelligence services uh, probably are the ones who actually located Zarqawi mm-hmm. uh, for the U.S. Now, now, how do how do uh, Jordanians feel about Zarqawi? Zarqawi's from Jordan. Yes. And uh, I understand that most people in in Jordan, obviously or not obviously, maybe don't like him. But that the young people tend to be have a more favorable attitude toward him. Well, uh, there was a poll done, and um, you know, sixty, seventy percent of Jordanians uh, hate his guts, call him a terrorist, all that kind of thing, uh, refuse to accept that he's any kind of a martyr. 
Uh, but about 15% in this poll uh, said that he was either a martyr or an ordinary citizen. I can't explain to you how they get that result. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, <laughs> anyway, that he's not such a horrible person, uh, and maybe even a martyr. And, and that 15%, uh, they disaggregated it. They found that they were disproportionately young men between 18 and 34. Uh, so that's worrisome, you know, if, if the young people uh, uh, have a more radical attitude on this and lionize Zarqawi more. So, I mean, what what that tends to suggest is that uh, our involvement in Iraq has uh, increased uh, Islamicist uh, tendencies toward Islamicist terror or sympathy for it, and and uh, maybe recruiting people. And, and yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt about uh-huh. the, the the recruitment bonanza for uh, Al Qaeda and similar gr- groups uh, from the U.S. occupation of Iraq. I mean, from the point of view of ordinary, everyday people in the uh, Middle East, uh, Arabic-speaking Muslims, something like the U.S. assault on Fallujah was just an atrocity, uh, and they don't see both sides of this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if, uh, if, you're a rec- if somebody's a recruiter for al-Qaeda and they go to the young people in the mosque and they say, well, how can you just uh, sit here and pray while the Americans are slaughtering uh, ordinary people over there in Fallujah, you know, it's a pretty powerful recruitment tool. Okay, now... now uh, it- Let's look at what's going on in Israel and 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 the Gaza. Uh, Hamas has, I mean, there are elections in in uh, the Palestinian in Palestine. Uh, Hamas has been elected. Is that a result of this, or is that just uh, the natural uh, extension of Arafat dying? Yeah, I think that the Hamas victory is very complicated because uh, it wasn't. It, it was one of those things where if you totaled up the popular vote, they didn't really win, but they won by uh, technicalities. Uh, I don't think most people in the West Bank are really very sympathetic to Hamas as an ideology. Um, but I, I think there are a lot of things going on. I think there hasn't been any progress on the peace process. Oslo is dead. Uh, uh, the, these uh, Israeli settlements have continued to expand in numbers. Uh, and people were uh, uh, just, um, uh, you know, there's very high rates of unemployment. Uh, there's uh, very high rates of malnutrition. Now 15% of the kids are malnourished. Uh, so I think there's just a lot of frustration. I think it was a protest vote more than anything else. I think it was unwise for the U.S. and Israel to allow Hamas to run if they weren't going to deal with them if they won. from Nebraska online too. Hey Kelly. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I'm just kind of curious what what kids are you talking about over in Iraq? Uh, our soldiers. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, our soul. Well, you're making it sound like we're taking a bunch of sixth graders over there and shipping them over to fight our war in Iraq. You mean all the adults that have volunteered to go over there and fight? Yeah, I know. Uh, Kelly, they volunteered, so F them, right? Nope. Actually, I got family members over there, and I'm worried about them. And I'm okay. sorry that we're losing losing guys over there. But yeah. they got a job to do. Uh, well, first of all, they had a job to do, uh, and that was uh, capturing Al Qaeda, who attacked us. Unfortunately, their leaders, not them, they don't make the decisions. Their leaders sent them on a fool's errand, and now they're getting killed there for absolutely no reason. Are they adults? Of course, they're adults. But a lot of these guys. Kids, whatever you want to call them, are 19, 20, 21-year-old. Unfortunately, I'm all the way up to 36 these days, and some of them do seem like kids to me. It seems like a damn shame that we're taking kids out of high school. And in that Fahrenheit 9-11 movie, they're recruiting straight out of high school. They showed it, and unfortunately, the recruiter himself today died. Uh, And we send them over there, and they die for this guy's 
uh, Iraq war that didn't make any sense when Iraq wasn't any threat to us. You got a family member over there. The fact that they volunteered means nothing. Just because they volunteered doesn't mean that you could send them on a terrible, disastrous mission. You should be even more concerned about that. Doesn't it sicken you that Iraq was no threat to us and no connection to al-Qaeda, and we went in there anyway? Well, I tell you what, Bush never said it was a war against Iraq. He said it was a war on terror. And that's going to take us to a lot more places than Iraq once this is all said and done, unfortunately. That is very unfortunate, and it doesn't have to. First of all, Iraq was not linked to the people who bombed us on 9-11. They had no connection with al Not operationally. What is they that They were mean? not connected operationally. Oh, so they were connected metaphysically? What do you mean? I, well, they uh, were they. You, you know, know who sending positive vibes to each other? What, what was happening? Does the name Leon Klinghoffer ring a bell to you? Yeah. First of all, if you're so you're talking about the Palestinian issue, is that what you're talking about? Because there was one guy who's a terrorist uh, from the Palestinian issue that wound up uh, being in exile in Iraq. You know that uh, Saudi Arabia had Idi Amin in exile until he died a couple of years ago, and he was well, a brutal, brutal killer. Should we have invaded Saudi Arabia? Well, I think we're going to end up before we're done. You and I tell you me. what, Iran, Iran, we've been owing Iran for some payback from about 25 years ago. I mean, it's an act of war when you take over an embassy compound, don't you think? Uh, Kelly, you're going to go back and fight a war from 1979? I mean, well, you've got today. family we're members still, in the armed forces. Are you nuts? You're playing with their lives because you want to feel tough about something because you didn't get it off your chest in 1979? You were willing well, to start was, a nearly was, a world war for that and get your family members killed? Are you nuts? Yeah, I must be nuts because, you know, I want to protect this country. Protect Listen. the country from what? Is Iran going to invade us, Kelly? Is that what you're suggesting? Are they about to take over Seattle? Is that what's happening with Iran? All right, let me, let me ask you this. Now, last week, they, or two, I don't know, 10 days ago, whatever, they arrested those seven guys in Miami, right? They did, that's right. And, and God okay, and they them. said, and, and now we've got people saying, well, they didn't have any guns and they didn't have any bombs. Well, neither did Mohammed Atta. Did you hear me people. say that? Did you hear me say that? You didn't hear anybody on the show say that, right? Look, those are if they're plotting an actual terrorist uh, operation inside America, that is the exact right people we should be going after. And this administration well, we can agree on something. Absolutely. And this administration isn't going to do everything wrong. They got that right. And the good people that work in the Justice Department found those people, and God bless them for it. See, but those people weren't Iraqis. Okay, that doesn't mean because some uh, Muslims were plotting something in America doesn't mean we should invade Iran. Well, this gets to my point that it's not a war with just this is a war on terror. All right, and we we were we did not start this war. They've been taking off Americans for the last thirty years, and nothing has been done about it. Kelly, Kelly, done, Kelly, nothing Kelly, was Kelly, done about it. Kelly, Jesus Christ! First of all, there is no such thing as a, a, a terror is a tactic. It's like having a war on rifles. So I'm going to have, have a war on rifles until I wipe out every rifle in the world. For terrorism, there's Sri Lankan terrorists. Are we going to invade Sri Lanka, Kelly? Is that what you're telling me? Say that again. Are we going to invade Sri Lanka? There's Sri Lankan terrorists. You have a war on terror. Are we going to invade Sri Lanka? Well, not if the Sri Lankan government takes care of it. We shouldn't, have to, we shouldn't have to be in the Philippines either. We can't have a war on uh, on a tactic, Kelly. We can't invade every country that has terrorism in it. Uh, uh, and by the way, if you were going to do that, one of the last countries on earth you would have invaded was Iraq. It wasn't even on our... Before the war, the State Department put together a list of 45 countries that had links to terrorism. Iraq wasn't even on the list. Okay? It was, at best, the 46th country related to terrorism. Come well, on, you, Kelly, you've you got to you snap can, out of it. You're, you, they're feeding you your Republican yell, talking points. You can yell all you want. But the and thing is, after the first Gulf War, when they signed the Articles of, uh, uh, help me out here, when they, when they stopped the first Iraq War, mm -hmm. it was stated that there were going to be no fly zones. That's right, and there were. And we contained Saddam for over a decade. The first time that they fired on one of our aircraft, we had the right, then and there, to attack him again. Now, we didn't do that. We probably launched some missiles at a radar site, but we didn't go in and, I, and invade. There were 17 articles that he did not abide by. Now, how many do you, I mean, do you wait for 17 to go by and pass, or do you Kelly, let him have Kelly, 100? Kelly, Kelly, what am I going to do with you? Listen, uh, I want to take more callers. I, first of all, I, I'm going to address that point. 
But I want to thank you for the call. We always appreciate all calls from all different points of view because it helps flesh out the issues. First of all, Saddam Hussein, yes, we had no fly zones. Yes, as General Zinni said in, in, on Meet the Press, a very smart thing. It, it's a, uh, a dishonor uh, and an insult to our troops to say that Saddam was not contained because our troops contained mm -hmm. Saddam for over a decade with those no-fly zones. And... Uh, Yes, we could have invaded at any time. Yeah, George H.W. Bush, he had an open door to Iraq, and he didn't invade. Was he wrong? No, he wasn't wrong. He was right. Department of the, the Secretary of Defense at the time, Dick Cheney, was right when they said, what are we going to do there? We're going to topple Saddam and open up a Pandora's box, have sectarian strife. Once you break it, you own it, as Colin Powell said. Why do we want to break Iraq? We don't want to. It was a bad idea then. It was a bad idea in 2003 when we did it. Saying, oh, he was in violation of U.N. resolutions. Number one, Israel's in violation of U.N. resolutions. Should we invade Israel? Of course not. The question is context. You know, why can we continue? Is there just because somebody's in violation of a UN resolution doesn't mean you invade? You send in all the troops. There are different ways to contain people, and certainly we had uh, Saddam contained. And by the way, in those so-called resolutions, he was in violation of were weapons of mass destruction. Apparently, not in as much violation as we thought. He's an idiot for not telling us and showing us throughout. But remember, at the very end, we kicked out the weapons inspectors, not Saddam Hussein. feature on the broadcast today because I've, I've noticed a growing number of phenomena that fit into this category. Amazing, but not surprising. Like this, Dan Rather, who forced Walter Cronkite into early retirement, refused to be interviewed for a documentary on his predecessor. Cronkite turns 90 later this year. Rather is believed to be sulking over the way he was dumped by CBS News and replaced by Katie Couric. Couric agreed to narrate the 90-minute profile of Cronkite. She recorded the narration last week. Instantly agreed when the idea was proposed to her several weeks ago. She was very cooperative, she told, uh, the uh, documentary maker told the New York Post. Rather, however, was not. He was asked to participate in interviews for the show, but said no for reasons... He didn't make clear. He declined twice, according to the story. Cronkite revealed in his memoir that Rather threatened to leave CBS unless Cronkite gave up his anchor chair several months before his 65th birthday. And, says one media insider, once Rather had the job, he never let Cronkite on the air again. Walter has never forgiven Rather for his brutal tactics, said the media Insider. Amazing, but not surprising. Then, overconfident people are more likely to wage war, but fare worse in the ensuing battles. According to a new study, this is from NewScientist.com, the research on how people approach a computer war game backs up a theory that, quote, positive illusions, unquote, may contribute to costly conflicts. It supplies critically needed experimental support for the idea that positive attitude, which is generally a beneficial feature of human behavior, may lead to overconfidence and damaging behavior in the case of war. This is Peter Turchin, not Peter Duchin, Peter Turchin of the University of Connecticut. Previous work has suggested that mentally healthy people can have highly optimistic predictions. This optimism may have offered an evolutionary advantage in the past, allowing our ancestors to cope with adversity and uh, Geico commercials. But in the present day, this optimism may wreak havoc on international relations, argue the researchers who conducted computer simulations to test their hypothesis. Amazing, but not surprising. And finally, in this new category, new to you and me, already victims of one nuclear experiment, the people of Bikini Atoll are reluctant to get involved in another. 
The islanders are skeptical of the latest plans to reduce the dangers of a homeland beset with radioactive contamination. The United States evicted all 167 residents in 1946 and tested 23 nuclear bombs in the area over the next dozen years. The biggest was a 15-megaton test codenamed Bravo. The atoll was badly contaminated by fallout. To encourage the remaining islanders and their descendants to return, scientists at the Livermore Na- uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory have been investigating ways to prevent the cesium-137 in the soil from accumulating in the islanders' food. They discovered that applying potassium fertilizer to soil reduces 20-fold the amount of cesium taken up by the coconut trees. The effect lasts for up to 10 years. They say in the Journal of Environmental Radioactivity, it would be hard to overstate the importance of this assurance to returning populations, the researchers conclude. That's not how the Bikinians see it. According to their representative, treatment with potassium would still leave much of the land contaminated beyond U.S. radiation safety limits. Quote, this still looks too much like an experiment to most of the islanders, he told New Scientist magazines. And besides, potassium fertilizer. Ask Timothy McVeigh. show uh, dark stories that we've become covering Iraq Afghan and torture Iraq we already uh, you know did and if you missed it please go on the website and read the New York Times great New York Times articles about them uh, for yourself on the youngturks.com now we're on to torture uh, again we'll do these quickly and again the stories are on the website for you to read yourself and you really should because it gives you a startling uh, inside look as to what's happening uh, we apparently captured this man captured is a funny word because he was just walking around. <laughs> it's not like he was on a battlefield, and it's not like he uh, was fighting against us. He was in Tanzania, in Africa, and his name is uh, Saidi. Saidi. And he sound, first of all, it sounds like we should have captured him. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, with a name like Saidi, uh, how could he not be a terrorist? Uh, so what we did was we did the usual, uh, what we call renditions, what the rest of the world calls kidnappings. Uh, we grab him, and we take him to the border, and there's a couple of guys in, as he explains, jeans and a T-shirt, speaking uh, English, uh, to a couple of the uh, Africans over there that had captured him and, and brought him to there. They take him to a set of prisons, you know, we keep him a week here, a week there. Finally, they take him to Afghanistan, what appears to be Afghanistan, uh, to what they call the dark prison. Odd that we would be taking terrorists to Afghanistan. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It is kind of <laughs> odd. thought. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess we had that point. Like, we are not taking them direct because it's not, really not that secure. Right. But Afghanistan, we got locked up a little bit better, or we did certainly before. Uh, now, the reason they call it the dark prison is because there are ten different uh, people who have been captured who describe the same exact prison. And they all describe it as a dark prison, a prison of darkness. And uh, apparently, insane clown, clown posse might have made an appearance there because they're playing heavy metal, rap, and loud American music is what everybody describes. They hang everybody from the ceiling. I don't mean by their neck. They uh, put handcuffs on them, and they make them stand up, and they put their arms above their heads and hang them by the ceiling, which, of course, that's eventually... Torture. Yeah, that's torture. That's eventually, torture. The, the music is ridiculous, but not torture. Of course. Uh, and uh, their legs wind up swelling up and bloating because you're not supposed to stand for days on end and you're not supposed to hang from the ceiling either unless, yeah. you're, doing, unless you're doing a pull-up exactly and then they get punched kicked spat on uh there's urine and defecation everywhere it's a, and then this series of torture read the whole article yourself you'll see all the different torture we do uh is goes on for this particular guy for 16 months and there was, of course if you remember there was khalid al-masri the german guy 
who we had kidnapped and done the same thing to, and it turns out they were in the same prison. And every night they would talk to each other when the guards left, mm -hmm. and they would exchange phone numbers. And they would say, if any of us get out, the pe all the people being uh, kept there, they would pass their phone numbers to each other, call our families and tell them where we are and tell them we're not dead yet. <laughs> right, we're not dead yet. Right. <laughs> right. And... Uh, and Khalid al-Masri was then later released as well because it he turns out he was the, uh, the wrong guy. It, we needed, like, Khalid al-Masri. Literally got the wrong name and just kidnapped the wrong guy and, slightly kept, off. and tortured him for over a year and said, oh, whoops, and then we dropped him off in, like, Albania or something. It was like, good luck. Yeah. And we did the same thing to this guy. Uh, 16 months later, they're like, tell us about the uh, the bombing of the planes you were going to do and the planes you were talking to about your wife, because they'd recorded his conversation. I presume also they were talking to him about uh, uh, the, the bombings in Tanzania. Yeah, but they had nothing on that, and they didn't think he was involved. They didn't, had no reason to believe he was involved. They had this uh, Islamic foundation that he was a part of that they shut down because they thought they was funneling money to terrorists, but it looks like the previous guy who ran the foundation uh, might have been responsible for that. Of course, they asked him about that. And when I started reading the story, I was like, well, that doesn't sound good, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a couple things in there where I was like, well, by the end of the story, you realize they no. totally got the wrong guy. Uh, he, uh, They say, what about the planes? He's like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I never talked about Kenyan planes with my wife. And then I finally, like months and months later, maybe about halfway into his thing, they bring the recording in. He's like, I didn't say planes. I said tires. And they asked the Moroccan translator. Moroccan translator is like, yeah, tires. He said tires. said tires. And it was a tire business that his brother was going to run in Kenya. No. Tires for the planes that were going to be flown into buildings. <laughs> and they're like, oh. And he said, after that, they never mentioned the plane thing again. Right. Because it was clear they totally screwed it up. There was a mistranslation. 16 months later, they put him back on a plane. They give him white shoes, another part of the story that I found unfortunately amusing. And uh, and they drop him off in a bus stop in Algiers, and they're like, hey, good luck. <laughs> okay. And now, if for corroboration, I included another article on the website in that same piece. Yeah, you know what? Anyway. And that article is about eight other guys who are still in Guantanamo Bay. They did the same thing to that explain and describe the same exact place we in don't, Afghanistan. We don't need corroboration. This is obvious. <laughs> I mean, it's so patently obvious. Yeah. So. There's not some advanced network of Al Jazeera people going around making up the story. What are we doing? That, that's my conclusion to you in this hour. What are we doing? This is America? This is America. And the Republicans are proud of this. Yeah! We kidnap and torture the wrong guys, and then we drop them off in random cities across the world. We rock. How does that help fight terrorists? It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. I think there was a reason why we didn't kidnap and torture people before. Yeah. Back when we used to call ourselves America and be proud. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to This is, this is fascinating. Robert Perry over at ConsortiumNews.com writing about this on October 29, 2004. Now we're going to step into the Wayback Machine here. Four days before the U.S. presidential election. Four days before the election. Osama bin Laden releases a videotape trashing George Bush. Bush supporters are out there running around going, ah, this is Osama bin Laden endorsing John Kerry. You remember this? This was four days before the election in 2004. Well, now Ron Suskind's new book, The 1% Doctrine, which is heavily based on sources inside the CIA. I mean, this is, this is one of the, the, apparently one of the really, really go-to books for this year says, in fact, 
behind the walls of the CIA, the professional analysts, the people who had no political dog in the fight, their only interest was in figuring out why did Osama bin Laden release this videotape four days before the U.S. presidential election, concluded that the reason why was because bin Laden wanted George Bush to be president of the United States for another term. As Robert Perry writes, according to Suskind's book, CIA analysts had spent years parsing each expressed word of the al-Qaeda leader and his deputy, Ayman Zawahiri. What they'd learned over nearly a decade is that bin Laden speaks only for strategic reasons. There, the CIA's assessment, this is from Suskind's book, the CIA's assessment at day's end are a distillate of that kind of secret internal conversations that the American public was not sanctioned to hear. Strategic analysis. Today's conclusion? Today being October 29th, 2004, four days before the U.S. presidential election. Today's conclusion, bin Laden's message was clearly designed to assist the president's re-election. At the 5 o'clock meeting, Deputy CIA Director John McLaughlin opened the issue with a consensus view. And here's now a quote. The CIA is meeting, and the Deputy Director, the number two guy at the CIA, John McLaughlin, he says, Bin Laden certainly did a nice favor today for the president. Bin Laden certainly did a nice favor today for the president. Well, you know, the, the president and the Saudis, they've been doing favors for each other for a long, long time. As Robert Perry notes, McLaughlin's comment drew nods from CIA officers at the table. Jami Misik, CIA Deputy Associate Director for Intelligence, suggested that the al-Qaeda founder may have come to Bush's aid because bin Laden felt threatened by the rise in Iraq of Jordanian terrorist Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Bin Laden might have thought his leadership would be diminished if Bush lost the White House and their eye-to-eye struggle ended. But the CIA analysts also felt, Robert Perry writes, that bin Laden might have recognized how Bush's policies, including the Guantanamo prison camp, the Abu Ghraib scandal, and the endless bloodshed in Iraq were serving al-Qaeda's strategic goals of recruiting a new generation of jihadists. Certainly, the CIA's Miskik said, he, bin Laden, would want Bush to keep doing what he's been doing for a few more years. As their internal assessments sank in, the CIA analysts drifted into silence, troubled by the implications of their own conclusions. Quoting from Ron Suskind's book, an ocean of hard truths before them, such as what did it say about U.S. policies that bin Laden would want Bush reelected remained untouched. This is the point that I have been making for a couple of years now. Well, since 2001. That you can't have, if you, if you look at the way literature is put together, you can't have a superhero without a supervillain. Here we have the new Superman movie is coming out, right? Or it is out. I haven't seen it yet. But, but I guarantee you that there is a piece to the formula of the new Superman movie that is absolutely consistent and predictable and is going to be there 100%, and that is that there's going to be an anti-hero. I believe it's Lex Luthor in this movie. There's going to be an anti-hero who has... An awesome amount of power, who is perceived as being the the ultimate power, the the ultimately most powerful. A true supervillain. Because you can't have a superhero without a supervillain. And George Bush needed a supervillain to be the opposite of. And so rather than dealing with bin Laden like a criminal... He he dealt with him as a super as a super arch enemy... And bin Laden needed a super villain in Bush. These guys need each other. And they are using each other, and it's a symbiotic dance. And and what's left behind in this dance? Us. The people of the United States, the people of Iraq, the people of the world. Bush elevates bin Laden, bin Laden elevates Bush, Bush elevates bin Laden, bin Laden elevates Bush. Each uses the other as a recruiting tool. And the world is in flames.
All right. Now, uh, I want to give you quotes about the war. Uh, I think these guys are entirely right, so uh, I want to give them a little airtime because I know uh, the right-wing hosts don't. Let me give you the quote first. This, the first one's kind of long, but I think it sums up things really well here. He says, I cannot support a failed foreign policy. History teaches us it is often easier to make war than peace. This administration is just learning that lesson right now. The president began this mission with very vague objectives and lots of unanswered questions. A month later, these questions are still unanswered. There are no clarified rules of engagement. There is no timetable. There is no legitimate definition of victory. There is no contingency plan for mission creep. There is no clear funding program. There is no agenda to bolster our overextended military. There is no explanation defining what vital national interests are at stake. There was no strategic plan for war when the president started this thing, and there still is no plan today. I, I, I have not heard this quote, Jack, and I'm just, can I, may, may I predict? Of course. I'm going to predict that that is like Newt Gingrich talking about President Clinton and Kosovo. Oh, so close. Tom DeLay talking okay. about right. President Clinton All and right. Kosovo. I'm going to count that one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but get a load of that quote. Now, those are the same guys yeah. who say, what? We don't need an exit strategy. We don't need a timetable. We don't need a clear definition of victory. Let, me, get, let me quote again. Uh, before, you, before you do, I just want to point out that we did it. We exited. Oh, <laughs> yeah. and, and by yeah. the way, I mean, this is all they're whining and griping and complaining about a war that went terrifically. I mean, that war couldn't have been better. We didn't lose a single U.S. Yeah, we didn't like, they didn't like that war because it distracted from, uh, from the important business of the country and impeaching the president because he lied about sex. Somebody has a good little uh, song, they parody they put up on Huffington Post. It's called I Miss Monica. And it's, it's cute because it's like, oh, the good old days when we had nothing to worry about and we could worry about, you know, whether the president slept with Monica Lewinsky right. and all the terrible things that are going on now. And they griped about uh, Kosovo War. Please, God, somebody bring me the Kosovo War. Bring me, bring me a war I can get behind. Yeah. I miss the Kosovo War. But that's not alone. I, won't, I don't need to repeat that one because there's plenty more where that came from. Tom DeLay again. You can support the troops but not the president. The same exact guy saying, hey, if you don't support the president, you don't support the troops. Yeah. No shame. No shame. Zero. Just because I like it. Let's keep going. Here's an old friend. Uh, let me give you the quote first. Tom, Bill Clinton was such an effective president. I mean, say what you want. He lied. He was a scoundrel, even. But I mean, Sexually. Who cares? No, no. But I mean, even if you care about that, that's fine. You get to care about it. People get mm. to care about it. They can. But you cannot deny that the, it was a, with the guy was an effective president. And the Tom, you can support the troops, but not the president. God, what a, what a sort of... Uh, what a diabolical political hack Tom DeLay turned out to be. <laughs> Who doesn't want the word diabolical? I didn't think that was coming today. <laughs> okay. Uh, here's another old friend. Explain to the mothers and fathers of American servicemen that they may come home in body bags why their son or daughter have to give up their life. Sean Hannity, Fox News Channel, talking about Kosovo. <laughs> Not one person came home in a body bag, U.S. service person. Okay, now there was, of course, other casualties in the Kosovo War. Now, over 2,500 from Iraq, has Sean Hannity ever said that about Iraq? Yeah, and Kosovo, you could, you know, there was a valid reason for going. Um, and they're just, what we, we didn't, he, nobody lied, Bill Clinton didn't lie about going to Kosovo. He said, no, this Milosevic guy, they're ethnically cleansing people. They're ethnically cleansing the, the Albanians, so we're going to go save that's what he did. You want another old friend? They keep on coming. And this might really be an old friend because he might soon not be the senator from Pennsylvania. Senator Rick Santorum. The president is once again releasing American military might on a foreign country with an ill-defined objective and no exit strategy. He has yet to tell the Congress how much this operation will cost, <laughs> and he has not informed our nation's armed forces about how long they will be away from home. These strikes do not make for a sound foreign policy. Hmm. 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 No exit strategy. No timetable. Ill-defined uh, objectives and not telling the troops when they'll come home. I'm sure, though, Senator Santorum must be equally concerned about the Iraq war that didn't last a month, but that lasted over three and a half years now. Have Where's Senator Santorum? Where are you, Senator Santorum? I can't quite hear you. Have any of these guys been confronted with these questions? In this round of the war, Larry King's I mean, getting to it. Larry King's <laughs> yeah, getting Larry on King's it. on the job. Uh, 
just because we like Tom DeLay so much, we'll give you a third quote from Tom DeLay. American foreign policy is now one huge big mystery. Simply put, the administration is trying to lead the world with a feel-good foreign policy. Now, hmm, I wonder if he said that about the generic, we're going to free the Iraqis and give them freedom and democracy against the evildoers. I wonder if that would qualify as a feel-good foreign policy. These guys have no shame, none whatsoever. But you think, but hey, it wasn't George W. Bush at least. George W. Bush's uh, representative and spokesperson, Karen Hughes. Mm-hmm. If we're going to commit American troops, we must be certain that they have a clear mission, an achievable goal, and an exit strategy. Yeah, you know, I, huh. I, I love being huh. I love being right because I remember back then during the during that during the during West Clark's campaign and, and and thinking not the campaign for president, the, the campaign against Slobodan Milosevic. Um, by the way, Slobodan Milosevic uh, kind of got something in common with Ken Lay. <laughs> yeah, Kirsten dying at an yeah. opportune time. Dying at an opportune time, yeah. Um, uh, you know, this exit strategy talk, exit strategy talk. And look, I just, I, I thought, I, I thought that's not meaty enough. It's not, it's not, doesn't make any sense. I don't know what that means. And, and I, you should have, I guess, you should know when you've won. Mm-hmm. But of course, what's interesting—it's still—and now, of course, it sounds incredibly hollow from these guys uh, to read back these quotes uh, at the time. But you know, all, what was going on also during that time, which, near as I can tell, is simply not going on now, was this enormous amount of diplomatic pressure simultaneously being put on Milosevic, mm-hmm. because we were prepared to stop the moment that he stopped. Yep, we weren't going to continue on to Montenegro. Hey, we were, hey, you know what happened, when, which was incredible. It worked. Yeah, the pressure, the diplomatic and the military, military pressure, pressure right. combined worked. They handed we, we they ended it. They we won, and they handed Milosevic over. That's shocking. Could you imagine if that happened in Iraq? Yeah. Where the Iraqis said, "No, okay, you win. You don't have to do the military option." Here's Saddam Hussein. We're handing him over, and we have a new government. Well, and we're going to cooperate with you. Well, look, as we well know, there are there were significant. Reports and and I don't I didn't know we were talking about this today and I don't have them in front of me and I don't uh, but uh, you know that that is there there is some evidence to suggest and I don't know whether it's true but some of the reports were pretty telling that that I believe the United Arab Emirates was going to ta- would take Saddam yeah uh, and that we didn't want that to happen for rather obvious reasons. All right, now uh, I want to give you one last quote here from a very very old friend, and I think he's just I think he nailed it the best. So I want to give him credit here at the end. This, there's a long list of quotes from all these guys, but I want to give you the best one here at the end. Victory means exit strategy, and it's important for the president to explain to us what the exit strategy is. The person who said that quote, George W. Bush. This is Cenk Uger from the Young Turks on the Best of the Left podcast. If you like what you hear, please go to our website, theyoungturks.com, where you can watch the show every day from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also participate in the discussion forums or a live chat with the Young Turks fans. And you can support liberal political programming by becoming a TYT member or by purchasing Young Turks merchandise. All that at theyoungturks.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. So you know that old... Uh, right-wing talking point about how when the Iraqis stand up, that's when we'll be able to stand down and leave. You, you know, they use that because it sounds good. And, you know, it, it, it definitely, it makes sense. You know, think about it. Like, we can't leave if they're unprepared because, you know, their country might collapse and, you know, it would just fall into anarchy and civil war. And so when the infrastructure of their government and security forces when they stand up in the figurative sense then they will be ready for us to stand down and pull out and they won't need our help anymore but i've heard a theory you know recently like within the last uh, four or six months or whatever that the iraqis will stand up when we stand down. And this is the theory that I subscribe to because it speaks to me in in a more, you know, on, on a different intellectual level 
where you know you you think deeper into it and it makes even more sense than the first theory but it speaks to me personally because i don't like cleaning up my own dishes you see i you know i i grew up totally like middle of the road middle class family uh, as far as i can tell uh, in the middle of california you know you know i wasn't spoiled i was uh, but I was the youngest child, and um, so, like, I wasn't spoiled with, like, possessions and things like that, but I was spoiled a little bit in the sense of how much was actually expected of me. So, you know, w growing up, I had chores to do, you, you know, like, I didn't just do nothing. I had, It's not like I had no responsibility, but, you know, I I was supposed to, you know, do... Like, you know, empty the dishwasher when the dishes were done and, you know, make the, uh, you know, spread out the dishes on the table for dinner. Just the little stuff like that. You know, I'm talking like elementary school, you know, mowing the lawn, things like that. But I, I you know, it, it wasn't a big deal to clean up my dirty dishes. Like, you know, you leave them around in the living room and whatnot. It wasn't a big deal to clean it up at all. I mean, you all know it's it's an easy thing. But the thing is, in the back of my mind, I always knew that if I didn't clean up the dishes, they would get cleaned up anyways. And, you know, I never got yelled at really for it. It was just one of those things that, you know, my parents felt like it was easier to just clean up the dishes themselves than to turn that into you know, a, a battle that they were going to fight. And, you know, in my own memory, I think it wouldn't have been that big of a battle, but when I was a little uh, bratty kid, maybe it would have been, I don't know. But, you know, so it wasn't until, uh, you know, many years later that I moved out. I was on my own. I moved directly from my parents' house into an apartment with my then-girlfriend, and so that situation was a little bit different. You know, I didn't have parents who were going to be taking care of me. And so it became a little bit more of a balance where, you know, she and I both, you know, kind of cleaned up after ourselves to the extent that, uh, you know, we, we hoped was acceptable. But we were just both kind of messy. So you know, the dinner dishes would just get left on the table until the next day. Well, once again, years later, well, a couple of years went by, and she moved out. And when she moved out, immediately, I began living in the cleanest way I've lived my entire life. Because I knew that if I didn't do the dishes, then they would never get done. You know, there was no other option. If I left the dishes out overnight, it would just be a bigger pain in the ass the next day to take care of. So, I, I you know, I would eat a meal and, you know, my next step would be into the kitchen to start cleaning those dishes. And it was something I'd never done my entire life. But when my support system stepped down, I stood up. Have a good one, everybody. This podcast is a member of the Progressive Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, you can find more at newmediarevolution.org.